This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my pleasure to be speaking about uh, wildfires in the context of climate change, especially as we move into what may be a very severe 2020 wildfire season. So the outline of my talk uh, will be to talk a little bit about wildfire in general, how climate change is impacting wildfires in California in particular, what's in wildfire smoke, what we know about health effects of exposure to wildfire smoke, and then public health messaging about uh, those health effects and uh, ways to reduce exposure to wildfire smoke when we have a catastrophic wildfire not to forget that there are post-fire issues as well, and then to end up talking about how we need to be preventing catastrophic wildfires. So wildfire has been a feature of the ecology of the Mountain West, um, not just California, for eons. And as many of you probably know, redwood forests are actually evolved to take advantage of uh, lightning fires. And Native Americans in California and elsewhere in the Mountain West uh, used managed fire over many years to um, help them farm and otherwise uh, use the forest uh, productively. But in the last couple of years here in California, uh, catastrophic wildfires at the uh, wildfire urban interface have got our attention. Uh, and cause a lot of devastation and uh, loss of life. So the first such fire was, or actually set of fires, was in October of 2017, the so-called Sonoma-Napa wildfires. And this uh, photo shows the wildfires uh, coming down uh, across a mountain uh, into vineyard areas. In December of 2017, there were a series of fires in Southern California, and the, the Thomas fire was even larger than the Sonoma-Napa fires. The key feature of uh, the Southern California wildfires in December is that they were well past the normal end of the California wildfire season, which normally goes uh, from, the, from right about now, end of April, start of May, um, into October. But as we'll discuss, we've had uh, fires well into the fall and uh, early winter when we're not supposed to have them. So 2018 was a particularly bad year. The car fire was up in Redding and uh, took out a neighborhood in Redding and, and killed a number of people, including at least one wildland firefighter. That was pretty devastating. That was early in the year. Uh, and then a little bit later was the Mendocino Complex fire, which uh, to date is still the fire that burned the most surface area of uh, forest in California. But fortunately, it was kind of in a remote area and only a few people died. But then came the campfire in November of 2018. And I'm not actually showing you the fire, but rather uh, on the right here, a satellite photo of the smoke plume coming down from Butte County at the top where the fire occurred all the way down the Central Valley and out the Bay Area. 
you know, the Bay Area is 175, 180 miles away from Butte County. So uh, as many of you remember, the air quality was terrible in the Bay Area and all across uh, uh, Northern California after the campfire. And just to put this in perspective, 2018 was a particularly bad year, but the acres burned in wildland fires in the U.S. have been increasing for several decades. This slide ends in 2013, but you can just follow that orange line uh, farther to the right, and that's where we'd be uh, in 2020. So the number of acres, uh, the number of, of what they call mega or catastrophic fires uh, have increased, and the fire season has gotten longer. So why were 2017 and 2018 such bad fire years in California, and actually in Oregon and Washington as well? In California, the Sierra snowpack uh, determines how much water we'll have for the rest of the year after the winter rains. And uh, we had five years of drought uh, preceding 2017. And so instead of the usual snowpack on the left here, we had very little snowpack on the right. And if I showed a photo of this year, 2020, it would look like January 2014. So prior to 2017, we had five years of drought and many dead trees. And when I say many, I'm talking about hundreds of millions of trees in the Sierra. And then we had an El Nino winter in 2017, which brought a lot of rain, ending the drought. So everybody said, great, no big problem with wildfires. Wrong. There was increased growth of vegetation in the spring because of all that rain actually created more fuel for fire during our normally dry and very hot summer weather. So a lot of fuel was generated, a lot of dead trees, and a lot of new growth of vegetation that was drying out. And then we didn't get any rain in the fall of 2017. Same thing happened in 2018, though we didn't get uh, so much rain uh, in, the, in January of 2018. So this is a course on climate change. And climate change is one of the major factors uh, leading to the increased number of wildfires and increased uh, size of, of wildfires. And this uh, graph shows if we get our act together and control greenhouse gas emissions by cleaner transportation and cleaner power uh, solutions, something that we're not really doing worldwide, though we're trying hard in California, we'll still have an increase in uh, both global warming and uh, wildfires. But if we continue business as usual, uh, the orange bars will show an even greater increase in, in uh, number of large fires per year. And these are the large fires that uh, encroach on urban areas and... Uh, and tend to kill people, as well as foul our air. I like this slide about wildfire emissions because it it shows how their uh, the emissions can cause health effects by making the air quality uh, quite poor, as we saw in 2017 and 2018 in the fall in the Bay Area. But these same emissions are almost are also climate forcing. So there's a feedback loop. Uh, so 
it actually makes climate change worse. And I'll talk about that in particular in terms of Australia in a slide or two. So the emissions from wildfires are many. Uh, there are primary pollutants given off directly by the fire and particulate matter, especially fine particulate matter that can make it down into the deep lungs uh, is sort of the focus with regard to public health. But if you're near the fire, like a wildland firefighter or in a neighborhood that's being engulfed by uh, a fast moving wildfire, there's also increased carbon monoxide, which is a poison, which it can kill people. And then oxides of nitrogen also have uh, direct health effects. It's a respiratory irritant. Uh, and then particularly hazardous are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs. What are these? These are the same uh, complex hydrocarbons that are in cigarette smoke, uh, some of which are known carcinogens. So there's an issue about being exposed to carcinogenic materials in wildfire smoke. Fortunately, most of us don't get exposed to these carcinogens uh, for very long, even during you know, a 10, day, 10 days of bad air, uh, such as after the, the uh, campfire. But think about being a wildland firefighter and being, smoke, being exposed to these carcinogens uh, on a regular basis throughout the fire season. And then there are volatile organic compounds, some of which are also carcinogens like benzene or formaldehyde, but this group are respiratory irritants and can lead to burning eyes um, and uh, itchy nose, sore throat, cough. And I like to think of wildfire smoke as similar to tobacco smoke without the nicotine, because it really is. Uh, tobacco smoke is uh, a mixture of fine part particles, carbon monoxide, oxides of nitrogen, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, volatile organic compounds uh, without, and then wildfire smoke doesn't have the nicotine. There are also secondary air pollutants that are generated in the atmosphere from the emissions from the fire. And so particulate matter is directly emitted as, uh, well, as forests burn, but also the oxides of nitrogen, for example, uh, in the atmosphere uh, form secondary uh, organic aerosol particles. And then uh, the oxides of nitrogen in particular, but also the volatile organic compounds can uh, lead to ozone being generated in uh, the atmosphere. And in particular, for summer wildfires, where we already might have high ozone levels, um, they can be increased by the, the wildfire. And it's not just forests that burn. These uh, catastrophic wildfires that overtake communities then burn uh, cars and buildings with synthetic man-made materials. And when buildings and vehicles burn, we get structural fire smoke, uh, motor vehicle fire smoke that contains toxic air contaminants, including hydrogen cyanide, a direct poison, hydrochloric acid, a potent irritant, phosgene, a war gas, and toxic metals, as well as toluene, styrene, dioxins, which are all toxic uh, hydrocarbons. And there's a reason 
that structural firefighters wear Scott Air Packs, as you can see this firefighter has, uh, because they breathe clean air while they're fighting a structural fire because there's all these nasty materials that they'd be exposed to. This firefighter has taken off his mask too early because there's still smoke in the background. Uh, Sonoma, Napa, Thomas, and campfires, those nasty fires in 2017 and 18 that I talked about, they caused many buildings and motor vehicles to burn. So the local residents, such as the people who fled Paradise, uh, but probably folks in Chico just downwind, were exposed to more than wood smoke. And that also occurred in Sonoma and Napa. Uh, in Santa Rosa, uh, it wasn't just the, the wildland smoke, fire smoke. It was also these uh, toxic materials and structural fire smoke. A moment about Australia where they had tremendous fires this year. I'm going to show you data that only go through January, the middle of their fire season. So it's, it's gotten worse. But... When I made this slide in, uh, I think, early February, uh, so the data were through January of, of uh, this year, 16 million acres had already burned in the 2019-2020 Australian fire season. That's eight times what burned in California in 2018, which was the worst year we'd had uh, probably on record. And... These fires were in populated areas as well as out in the bush. And at the time I made the slide, 2,500 homes had been destroyed. And this is a satellite photo during, uh, it's either late December or early January, uh, showing how much smoke there really was. And New Zealand's over here someplace. You know, you can't even see it because of all the smoke. There was poor air quality in Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, and New Zealand. Um, and the Australian Open, the tennis uh, match uh, or set of matches was going on during this time. And uh, some of the athletes complained about uh, acute asthma symptoms, even if they hadn't had asthma, because, you know, they were uh, exercising very hard during the matches and then breathing a lot of smoke. And the uh, Australian equivalent of our EPA uh, estimated that the climate forcing emissions, so the contribution to global warming from these emissions was equal to eight months of all of the man-made sources in Australia. And I would say probably based on that, by the end of the fire season, it was probably equal to a whole year of man-made sources. And that's that kind of uh, Comparison can be made in California, too. Despite the fact that we're working hard to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from clean transportation, clean power solutions in California, uh, bad wildfires uh, pretty much negate a lot of our efforts. So now let me talk about some of the health effects of short-term exposures to wildfire smoke. Uh, I've been studying wildfire smoke health effects for a long time. And with colleagues um, from UC Berkeley uh, and uh, the British Columbia uh, CDC and the University of British Columbia, we did a critical review of the literature about health impacts of wildfire smoke through 2015, and it was published, you know, the next year. I like this photo, too, by the way. This is during the Thomas Fire in December of 2017. A family 
They're all wearing N95 masks, uh, but you can see how bad the smoke was. They'd be better off inside than walking. And uh, the N95s are not certified for children to, to wear. So I'm not sure how much protection the kids are getting here. So our review and subsequent studies have uh, continued to show this. There's clear evidence of an association between wildfire smoke and respiratory health outcomes. Uh, almost every study has shown asthma exacerbations in association with higher exposure to wildfire smoke. And similarly, exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, uh, the primary cause is uh, smoking, but once you have it, other exposures to irritants, such as wildfire smoke, can uh, cause exacerbations. And most studies show exacerbations of, of COPD in association with wildfire smoke exposure. And when we wrote this, uh, there was growing evidence of a link between wildfire smoke and respiratory infections. And I mean pneumonia and acute bronchitis when I talk about respiratory infections. And I'm going to pause here to mention COVID-19 because uh, COVID-19 is an acute lower respiratory tract infection. Um, and it's quite likely that air pollution in general and wildfire smoke in particular can lead to more severe cases of COVID-19. Might even increase the risk of getting infection in the first place. And again, I'll make an analogy with cigarette smoke. We know for sure at this point that cigarette smoking is a risk factor for severity of COVID-19. Um, there are multiple studies from China, uh, Italy, and soon from the U.S. that will have shown this. Um, and there's already been 13 such uh, studies published. Uh, and you know, when you do a meta-analysis of these 13 studies, there's a clear link with smoking. There are a few studies that are showing links with air pollution. Um, more will be coming out. But if we step back and talk about what we know about fine particulate, PM 2.5, the soot that uh, is generated by uh, motor vehicles, power plants, etc., we know already that PM 2.5 um, is associated with increased risk of respiratory infections. So there's pretty solid evidence that um, wildfire smoke can be a problem with regard to COVID-19. So if we're still having plenty of COVID-19 cases occurring during the fire season this year, um, that's going to be a problem. And it's also a problem for fighting wildland fires. Uh, the way that both the U.S. Forest Service and CAL FIRE fight uh, wildfires is with teams that are in close contact with each other which is uh, pretty much against the social distancing that we've been using to try to control um, COVID-19. So respiratory health effects, uh, there was pretty solid evidence when we did our review. For cardiovascular effects, it wasn't so clear. There was kind of mixed data, but there were some studies. And this is a study that was published in 2015 from Australian investigators, but it was actually back uh, in their fire season in 2006, 2007, but it was a very good study uh, published in a very good cardiology journal, the Journal of the American Heart Association. And they showed that in men, out-of-hospital cardiac arrests were increased in association with wildfire smoke. Uh, 
And in women, it was hospitalizations for ischemic heart disease, basically heart attacks. Um, but there were mixed data back in 2015. But there have been multiple studies since we published our review, uh, including this one, uh, which I'll talk about, that have now uh, suggested that there's a pretty strong evidence base for cardiovascular outcomes in relation to wildfire. This study, uh, I'm particularly interested in highlighting, it was also published in the Journal of the American Heart Association because the lead author, Zach Wettstein, was a UCSF uh, medical student. Uh, and he collaborated with uh, folks in the California Department of Public Health and the US EPA to do this study. And it wasn't of one of these uh, bad fire seasons, 2017 or 2018. It was the 2015 wildfire season. Um, even though it was published in 2018, it was the 2015 wildfire season. And they showed uh, with light, medium, and heavy exposure to wildfire PM 2.5. And they I won't explain it because it's kind of complicated, but they actually were using uh, an exposure assessment method for wildfire PM 2.5. They subtracted out the other causes of PM 2.5, like from traffic and power generation. So with light, medium, and heavy exposure to uh, wildfire PM, you got an increased risk in uh, especially older adults, the ones that most at risk for cardiovascular outcomes, the yellow bars and, and dots here. It's what we call the exposure response relationship. Very strong. Also for um, all adults. Younger adults, no. And it was all cardiovascular events, heart attack, congestive heart failure, strokes. And they also looked at respiratory causes. And this next slide kind of puts the cardiovascular outcomes in perspective. I told you we have very solid evidence about respiratory health effects, and this study showed that as well. And I should say, the health effects were uh, ascertained by uh, the California Department of Public Health's database with regard to emergency department visits and hospitalizations. Um, that's why they used the 2015 uh fire season because it takes a couple years for those uh, California Health Department data to be publicly available. So the expected effects in terms of respiratory health outcomes, emergency department visits, uh, hospitalizations, and very similar effect sizes for cardiovascular outcomes. Stroke, this was kind of new data. Uh, there wasn't much on stroke. The stroke effects seem strong, but there are what we call wide confidence intervals. So we're a little bit less sure about this. Um, I think they, these effects didn't necessarily reach uh, statistical significance because of the wild, wide confidence intervals, but it's pretty suggestive. So other health, health outcomes may be associated with wildfire smoke uh, particulate based on analogy with what we know about other sources of uh, fine particulate. So we know that fine particulate exposure is associated with adverse birth outcomes, especially low birth weight. And there already are uh, several studies that show this in relation to wildfire smoke, one in California from, I think, the 2007 or 2008 uh, fire season in San Diego. 
there's concern about the health of pregnant mothers exposed to uh, wildland fire smoke. And there's strong evidence about mental health effects of uh, bad air days with regard to uh, fine PM 2.5, which we think translate to uh, wildfire smoke as well. I'm not talking about post-traumatic stress, which definitely occurs uh, to individuals who's, who have lost their homes, uh, have had to, to flee for their lives. I'm talking about the mental health of the general population. And I know I was kind of on the depressed side um, during the 10 days of bad air quality uh, in the San Francisco Bay during the campfire. There are chronic effects from recurrent, or question about chronic effects from recurrent exposures based on the PM 2.5 literature. Now, the PM 2.5 literature from other sources uh, of pollution studies chronically bad uh, situations like, you know, living in uh, Delhi or uh, a polluted Chinese city or in the past in, in the U.S. when we had worse air quality. But that's every day or most days. With wildfires, um, people get recurrently exposed that they live in an area that's uh, prone to wildfires. Um, but they're not exposed for most of the year. So there really aren't any studies in the literature from recurrent exposure, but that's a big question. And uh, this is just a slide from the US EPA talking about the different types of uh, particulate that are regulated by the agency. And uh, PM 2.5, which I've been referring to, is... uh, particulate matter that's 2.5 microns in diameter. And this is a human hair, which is about 60 microns in diameter. And then uh, PM10, 10, 10 microns, that's bigger particles that uh, can make it down to the airways, but don't get into the deep lung. They're the blue spheres here. Uh, and then PM2.5 are the little red spheres. So you can see these are really tiny particles and they make it down into the deep lung. So there is uh, literature that suggests that chronic exposure to fine particulate uh, matter can lead to increased risk of diabetes, increased risk of high blood pressure, increased risk of obesity. Not that it's the only cause, but it's a contributing factor for these outcomes. Uh, there's actually ever-increasing evidence that it can contribute to cognitive decline in old people like me. Um, there's actually risk of dementia uh, that's increased with uh, PM 2.5 exposure, again, on a chronic basis. And there's also evidence on the other end of the life course that uh, children's Intellectual and neurodevelopment can be affected by chronic exposure to PM 2.5. So we don't know if any of these outcomes are related to wildfire smoke, but there's concern about that. And then I mentioned health of pregnant mothers already. So at the top, this was health of pregnant mothers for short-term exposures. Down here, it's with chronic exposure. So I have to turn to uh, talk about wildland firefighters at this point, because 
if any group is heavily exposed on a recurrent basis to wildfire smoke, it's career wildland firefighters. As you know, uh, many wildland firefighters are seasonal workers. Uh, and in California, we use prisoners to do a lot of the grunt work in fighting uh, wildland fires. But there are career wildland firefighters in both the U.S. Forest Service and, and CAL FIRE. And those folks are starting to be studied. And I've been involved in studying them for many years, but was never able to study them on a, a recurrent basis. But uh, we know that these uh, firefighters get heavily exposed to smoke because they can't wear the structural, they can't wear the Scott Air Packs that structural firefighters wear. It's just physically impossible during 12 hour shifts working hard uh, on wildland fire lines. But they have been studied in terms of their lung function and biomarkers of exposure and inflammation across a 12-hour typical wildland firefighter shift. And uh, negative effects of the smoke have been found on all of these uh, outcomes. And then um, I did a study uh, in the late 80s with colleagues and the California Department of Public Health, and we showed that uh, measuring lung function at the start of the season in April or May, and then coming back in October, which was then the end of the season, that we saw saw loss of lung function in these incredibly healthy, incredibly fit people and increased twitchiness of their airways. This is a tendency towards asthma. We didn't cause, we didn't see anybody develop asthma, but there was a tendency towards that. And other people have showed uh, airway inflammation across a, a fire season. But what we don't know is the six months or so that the firefighters aren't fighting fires, do they recover completely? Or do these fire season associated changes persist? And that's what we need to, to study. And uh, with colleagues uh, in the U.S. Forest Service, primarily, uh, we did a risk assessment for career wildland firefighters in terms of their risk of lung cancer and cardiovascular disease mortality based on the PM 2.5 literature. And we estimated the daily dose of wildfire, sm wildfire smoke, uh, PM 2.5 in active firefighters and how many days on average they would be doing active firefighting and what the dose was during those, for those days. And then career dur durations, and we modeled from five to 25 years. And there was an appreciable risk. You know, this is a modeling study. It's not with direct data, but we, it was worrisome. Eight to 43% increased risk of lung cancer and, and 16 to 30% increased risk of cardiovascular disease mortality. You know, structural firefighters, uh, are presumed when they get lung cancer or cardiovascular disease that it's presumed to be related to their, their work. That's not the case for wildland firefighters. So we need to study these folks more. So I want to move on to the public health response. Uh, you know, I did 32 media interviews after the campfire uh, in November 2018, during and after, uh, because uh, people wanted to know how to protect themselves in terms of their health uh, 
when the air quality was so bad from this fire. And so the US EPA, the CDC, and the California Department of Public Health and the California Air Resources Board have collaborated to produce this document, a guide for public health officials, which is available online to the public, not just public health officials. It's very good at talking about how to plan and get ready to protect the public health during uh, wildfire smoke exposure. So I recommend this. And one of the features of the public health response to wildfire smoke is uh, public health advisories, messaging, uh, and the messaging is recommended to be based on the US EPA's air quality index. And this is often reported every day in certain uh, news outlets. I think uh, there's often a air quality index in the weather section. And there are these numbers for good, moderate, unhealthy, for sensitive groups like people with asthma, COPD, or cardiovascular disease. And then it gets to be unhealthy for everybody, and then very unhealthy, and then really hazardous. So let me uh, turn to what we know about uh, interventions to try to protect the public health when there's bad wildland fire smoke. And this study uh, that I'm about to discuss was conducted over 20 years ago, uh, but it's still one of the best studies uh, around. And the Hoopa uh, tribe up in Northern California uh, was exposed during the 1999 wildfire season to bad air quality for almost two months. There were multiple fires, there was an air inversion, and the smoke was so bad that the US CDC was called in to try to help. And uh, the CDC actually was able to do a study of various interventions to try to protect uh, the Hoopa tribe members from respiratory health outcomes. And uh, I've already mentioned this was a large fire that burned for two months. And uh, because it's a, a, a reservation, the tribal members only went to a couple different clinics for their health care. So they had almost complete capture of healthcare utilization for low respiratory illness during this fire. So one finding of this study was that uh, people who remembered hearing a public service announcement telling them to stay indoors, shelter in place, like we're doing now for COVID-19, was associated with reduced odds of of reporting adverse respiratory health effects when they surveyed the the, uh, tribal members after the wildfire smoke was gone. They also studied two ways to reduce exposure. So one way shown here uh, on the left is a portable air cleaner which basically has a HEPA filter, a high-efficiency particulate filter, which can uh, do a good job of reducing exposures in a room. And they showed that increased duration of use of HEPA air cleaners was associated with reduced odds of reporting adverse respiratory health effects uh, when the tribal members were surveyed. And they also studied N95 masks, They weren't actually officially N95s then. They were dust fume masks, but they were similar. Uh, And they found no protective effects for the use of masks 
or duration of evacuation. Some people actually got evacuated uh, out of the reservation to uh, cleaner areas. And so you say, why uh, didn't the mask or evacuation work? Well, they have, the masks were thought to uh, give people a false sense of protection. So they went out uh, and outdoors, they didn't shelter in place and they had greater exposure. And the evacuation, you know, was often only for a couple of weeks and the the bad air lasted almost two months. So they felt like the evacuation wasn't good enough. So I want to move to some real world case studies. Uh, I teach at UC Berkeley as well as UCSF. And I was actually teaching an air pollution course uh, in 2017 uh, when we had the uh, Sonoma Napa fires. And as you were, as many of you recall, there was bad air at the time, it was some of the worst air that ever been recorded in terms of PM 2.5 in the Bay Area. But then we surpassed that with the campfire. In Napa, the air was really bad. That's the purple up here. This is a US EPA map using the air quality index. But the actual PM 2.5 levels were over 200 micrograms per meter cubed. The uh, 24-hour EPA ambient air quality standard is 35 uh, micrograms per meter cube. So well in excess. But in Oakland, on October 13th, the worst day in terms of the air quality, it was only double the federal standard. But as that day went on, uh, things got a little worse. And the AQI, which doesn't translate exactly to the micrograms per meter cube, the AQI, which is what the county health department uses, in terms of uh, recommending public health action, it went over 200 during the day. And like I said, I was at UC Berkeley that day. I got an email from campus saying, oh, the air is bad. It's hazardous to your health. You should try to stay inside. If you have to be outside, consider wearing a N95. They didn't cancel classes. So the students had to walk between buildings. So it's a little crazy. The Bay Area Air Quality Management District actually asked UC Berkeley to cancel the televised football game that evening with Washington State because they didn't want people to get sick. But the game wasn't canceled because by 7 p.m., the air quality index had gone below 200 and the NCAA rule is 200, you know, for canceling an athletic event. So then we had the campfire the next year. started November 9th. And, you know, as you know, it took out the town of Paradise, killed over 80 people, and really created uh, a lot of smoke that traveled down to the Bay Area, as I've already shown you. So how bad did the air get? Well, remember, uh, it got to 70 micrograms per meter cubed in Oakland uh, on October 13th. It got... uh, over 200 micrograms per meter cubed uh, Thursday, November 14th. And it was projected to stay high for days. So this time, learning from the past, UC Berkeley got really beat up over their inaction during the year before. UC Berkeley canceled classes. They didn't close campus. Why? Because some of the buildings on in campus are new buildings that are well-ventilated and well-filtered and are actually very safe places to be. 
during the fire. And they went ahead and postponed the big game with Stanford scheduled for that Saturday because it was projected to be really bad, and it was. So I think Berkeley learned a lesson. But there was even poorer air quality closer to the fire. Um, I was in uh, Sacramento uh, on November 15th, and the fine particulate level in Sacramento went to 250 micrograms per meter cubed. Uh, And in Yuba City, closer to the fire, it was over 300. I think actually one day during the uh, campfire smoke that Yuba City was the uh, worst city in the world for PM 2.5. And this is showing another one of these EPA maps showing in purple, this is hazardous uh, because over 300 micrograms per meter cubed. Hazardous to health. Oh, and just to to show controversy about public health messaging in Sacramento, on November 15th, that day, uh, when it got really bad, I was up there, it was bad, uh, the city of Sacramento was issuing N95 masks for free at fire stations and libraries. But the county of Sacramento health officer did advise people not to wear N95s because he thought it would give people a false sense of, protect, false sense of protection in terms of going out as opposed to sheltering in place. And sure enough, as I was walking from the Cal EPA building where I was at a meeting to the train station, I saw somebody jogging with an N95. <laughs> there are post-wildfire problems that we need to talk about, at least briefly. Uh, I've already mentioned post-traumatic stress. It's a real issue and can be debilitating. There's often housing shortages, especially for low-income immigrant renters. This happened both in Santa Rosa and in um, uh, Chico. And, you know, who's hit hardest? Low-income immigrant renters. And uh, especially in Santa Rosa, a lot of the uh, vineyard workers were just these people. There's also the issue of post-fire structural building cleanup. I'm going to show you some photos on the next slide. It's an issue because the ash um, from, you know, burnt houses and cars is quite toxic. And much of the work is done by day workers who might also be low-income workers who are are not uh, well-trained. And then mudslides. Uh, The Thomas Fire, the mudslides after the Thomas Fire, uh, when it finally rained, were actually killed more people than the fire itself. So just some photos. These are People cleaning up in um, Santa Rosa, in the Coffee Park neighborhood, and you know they're not wearing any respiratory protective gear, and they're raking up uh, ash that they were going to breathe in. And then this, this is later on in the cleanup. There were formal contractors hired, uh, and at least some of them uh, appropriately protected their workers. This is actually better than an N95. This is a cartridge respirator which is appropriate for the toxic ash. And then mudslides in the Thomas, this is Montecito in the Thomas Fire area. And this is another photo, really devastating. So a little bit uh, about prevention of catastrophic wildfires. So, you know, this is the climate change course and climate change is certainly a major driver of catastrophic wildfires, but it's not the only driver. Fire suppression over decades 
in the U.S. increased the fuel availability. You know, we basically, the U.S. Forest Service uh, had this uh, motto of trying to uh, put out a lightning fire by 10 o'clock the next morning, as opposed to letting lightning fires burn, which, as I mentioned at the start, is part of the ecosystem uh, of uh, the Mountain West. So uh, that's when you hear President Trump saying we need to rake the forest. I don't agree about raking, but we do need to do forest maintenance. And you can do it mechanically by um, cutting down um, brush and, and, and moving it out, or you can use prescribed burns to uh, burn the brush um, and low, uh, lower vegetation to protect the um, taller redwoods. And the U.S. Forest Service knows how to do this. But the U.S. Forest Service budget goes mostly to suppression activities. Like every year, they have to ask Congress for extra money because every year there's more and more fire suppression that they have to do that leaves little resources for forest maintenance activities. And I can be specific about this. The Rim Fire uh, started in Yosemite, which was a national uh, park service facility, but it burned much more in the adjacent Stanislaus National Forest, in part because the Park Service actually has enough resources to do forest maintenance in Yosemite, but uh, the Forest Service hadn't done that uh, forest maintenance in the Stanislaus National Forest. Dead trees and excessive undergrowth need to be removed from our forests, and there's a huge backlog. It's not going to be something we can do in a year. It's going to take years to deal with this excessive uh, amount of fuel in our forests. And Governor Newsom has made it a, a, a priority prior to COVID-19. He wanted to uh, do massive uh, prescribed burns and mechanical clearing uh, in terms of reducing the risk of catastrophic wildfires. But I think the COVID-19 induced budget deficit may uh, prevent that from happening. And communities near national forests resist prescribed burns. This actually communities in general resist prescribed burns. So part of my message to this audience is that we need to realize that as, as nasty as the air gets for a community downwind from prescribed burn, it's a hell of a lot better than having a catastrophic uh, wildfire burn through that community. And, you know, I've talked about the Wildland Urban Interface, WUI as it's called, but that's also an issue. We cannot continue to build into uh, wildfire prone areas. Society can't afford it. Uh, so we can't take back the development that's already occurred. We have to make that uh, development more resilient to wildfires, but we shouldn't increase the no number of communities that are at risk for wildfires because it's already taken a huge amount of resources to deal with what's happened, and it's only going to get worse, as I showed you early on in the talk. So how can communities that are in the wildland-urban interface protect uh, themselves? Uh, they can do more. And this is showing how widespread the threat is in, in uh, California. Wherever it's red, there's a, a you know, pretty significant risk of wildfire. So we need to bulldoze fuel breaks around neighborhoods. You know, Paradise that burned in the campfire was literally, many of the homes were literally nestled in the woods with uh, 
surrounded by trees with no fire break and with dirt roads uh, that were narrow, uh, that weren't good for uh, egress during uh, a wildfire. There's all sorts of technology for detecting smoke with cameras and sensors that can be positioned around uh, communities at risk. We need to remove vegetation around homes, improve escape routes, and then train residents initial fire suppression. They do this in Australia, uh, in part because Australia is so uh, spread out compared to even California. Uh, Residents are trained to wet down their roofs uh, and to be, you know, ready to leave, but also ready to to, uh, put out embers to prevent fire from uh, spreading to their homes. So I want to end by saying that uh, the duration of the wildfire season is longer and catastrophic wildfires are increasing in frequency due to climate change. Acute respiratory effects are well documented, but new studies suggest acute cardiovascular effects as well. Post-fire health effects are impactful. And long-term effects of high or recurrent exposures need further study. And we need to invest heavily in forest management and community resilience. And with that, I thank you. John, have you um, been able to follow some of these? I know you've answered a number in, um, in a private conversation or, uh, or in response to questions, but anything particular jump out at you at this point? Well, I think something I mentioned uh, earlier uh, in the talk, but I have gotten a lot of media questions about is um, the effect of wildfire smoke on people that may be recovering from COVID-19. So uh, both prescribed burn smoke or uh, incident wildfire, and that is worrisome. And the U.S. Forest Service has actually been thinking about this. They probably aren't going to do prescribed burns in the U.S. forests national forest this year because they're worried about causing harm to uh, folks downwind that might be recovering from COVID-19. And uh, I think CAL FIRE is going ahead with prescribed burns because they think there's just so much, there's such a problem of uh, forest maintenance in California. So it's tricky. I asked you a question in the private chat about um, the, you had mentioned um, chronic exposure in China and Delhi um, as particularly problematic, but I asked about the chronic exposure to um, those in our California Central Valley, particularly, and um, uh, behind that question was my concern for the disparities in health impacts, um, both about uh, air pollution and climate change. And I wonder if you'd address that. You quickly respond. Sure. I mean, some of the worst polluted areas in California, actually in the whole country, are in the southern part of the Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley. Fresno and Bakersfield routinely get to be in the top five worst polluted cities in the country when the American Lung Association does their state of the air report. And I've been using the bad air in, in Fresno. Uh, to study the health effects of chronic exposure to air pollution on the health of kids um, for many years, over 20 years, published a number of papers. And uh, yes, it's an issue. Even 
even though the air in the in the San Joaquin Valley in Fresno Bakersfield is way better than Delhi or uh, Shanghai, for example, it still causes health effects in kids. We've documented that, and the health effects are not just asthma exacerbations, which is what we first were studying, but actually increased risk for pre-diabetes, um, higher blood pressure, weight gain. Uh, it's actually pretty scary to see the effects that we can measure in, in kids exposed to chronically bad air in, in Fresno. And I can only imagine what it's like in, in cities in Asia. I also wonder the impact on children's ability to learn and pay attention when they have that kind of exposure on a chronic basis. Well, there's actually a couple things. Yes, uh, the exposures themselves can be irritating and it can and hurt learning, but there's actually evidence that there can be direct effects of the fine particulate on neurodevelopment. Right. I'm going to go to Perry's question. Do you have a sense if the link with respiratory infections and particulate matter is only due to pre-existing conditions, or is there evidence for airborne link with viruses uh, and fine particulate combinations? Yeah, there's probably many of you have read in the media about this Harvard study um, that looked at average exposure long-term exposure to PM 2.5 in counties across the country and COVID-19 deaths. You know, the study has some limitations. It's, it's well done, but it has limitations in terms of the data they use. It's all at the county level. It's what we call an ecologic study. So it doesn't have uh, individual data about smoking or diabetes or high blood pressure. They use sort of average smoking data for a county. But uh, it did show a connection, a link between chronic exposure to PM 2.5, fine particulate, and, and risk of death from COVID-19. And that is in the context of many studies that have shown increased risk of pneumonia and other lower respiratory tract infections from PM 2.5, uh, independent of the coronavirus epidemic. And there are there is a study from China. It's actually several studies from China that are emerging. Studies from Italy uh, that also show a PM two point five or oxides of nitrogen connection with COVID nineteen severity and death. And there was one study done with the SARS epidemic, the original coronavirus uh, that caused deaths in Asia. So I think there is an air pollution. Uh, viral pneumonia link. Uh, it's pretty strong. And uh, we also know that smoking is a risk factor. And basically, air pollution is uh, kind of smoking light in terms of a risk factor. John, can you comment a little bit about um, what has become almost a obsession to find the right mask for us yeah. for uh, COVID and now for uh, wildfires. Uh, you did respond in the chat, but I wondered if you wanted to. Yeah, sure. No, I've been getting a lot of uh, media questions about uh, masks. So uh, N95s are definitely the best. Uh, uh, it's actually a respirator. It's formally uh, 
certified by NIOSH, that's what the N is, to filter out 95% of particles smaller than or as small as 0.3 microns, which is really small. So N95s that are properly fit on your face really are very protective, both for COVID-19 and wildfire smoke PM. Uh, unfortunately, because of COVID-19, N95s are hard for the general public to get right now. They're being sort of reserved for healthcare providers. Um, so the question is, are other types of masks uh, protective? I'll start with wildfire smoke. And actually, most people don't need to wear N95s if, they're, if they don't have underlying heart or lung disease, even when the wildfire smoke gets as bad as it did in the campfire days uh, in November 2018 in the Bay Area. Um, because most people, they'll get irritation of the eyes and throat, uh, may cough a little bit, but they won't actually get sick and need to go to seek health care. That's different. People with asthma or uh, pre-existing heart disease should wear N95s if they have to go out uh, during wildfire smoke. In terms of COVID-19, uh, again, uh, N95s are the best protection, but they're not really available for the general public right now. So surgical masks, which are designed to protect people from the wearer, you know, that was designed to protect the surgical field from contamination, um, do prevent us from spewing out respiratory particles. So we're protecting other people, but they also provide some protection of the wearer from what's out there. Um, and some of the cloth masks that uh, have been being produced are, are pretty good. The trouble with the cloth mask, they vary and they aren't tested. They're not certified like uh, NIOSH certifies the N95s. Or even surgical masks are also uh, made to certain specifications. So some cloth masks are great. Some are actually built with filter material in them. Uh, they're generally more comfortable. Uh, it's just that we need a better system for certifying them because some are not very good. And the, some of the homemade ones that look nice, are not. if the fabric is loose, they're not very protective. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.